So Nikisa, what if I was to tell you that one of the most enduring beliefs about entrepreneurship, especially the kind of entrepreneurship that we discuss during our podcast each week, mm -hmm. about the kinds of entrepreneurs that take companies to extraordinary heights and change society, was just plain wrong. Hmm. What would you think about that? That'd be really interesting. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, the place where we keep you informed about emerging technologies, innovation, and the global trends that are changing the world of business. I'm your host, Nikisa Mayoza, and with me, as always, Mike Grandinetti. We're so happy to be here with you today. A uh, lot to cover, so let's get into it. Uh, Mike, I love that intro and that teaser. Uh, so today, we're going to be discussing the relationship between that myth that you were talking about, uh, whether it's really the young that are that are pushing this that, uh, everything to the heights uh, when it comes to success. Um, so really, it's that relationship uh, and the research that suggests that the age uh, between 20s and 30-year-old entrepreneurs are the best bet. Uh, maybe it doesn't hold up. Now, now to all listeners, I, before all of you start saying, okay, boomer, uh, there's some great examples of pioneers that have done it young. Uh, but there's a movement of older entrepreneurs that are using the experience to, over time, push their companies to new heights. So we'll talk about, we've all heard about the jobs and the Zuckerbergs and the Gates, uh, but we'll talk about experienced entrepreneurs who are using their life experiences to propel them to new heights. Let's get into it, Mike. That's great. So, Nikiso, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, obviously a fairly controversial figure these days. <laughs> Absolutely. Quite famously and quite arrogantly said, young people are just smarter and more competent entrepreneurs. <laughs> now, another gentleman who actually has quite a bit of respect in Silicon Valley is Paul Graham. Mm -hmm. Paul Graham is the VC and the founder of Y Combinator, which is arguably the most successful of all tech accelerators in the world. Yep. Okay. And he actually made the statement, the cutoff in VC's heads is about age 32. Hmm. After about age 32, VCs start to become a little skeptical. Now, what I find remarkable about it is just it betrays, I think, that Silicon Valley groupthink. Yeah. It's a parallel universe. And, you know, there's just this projection, this extrapolation that what holds in Silicon Valley holds for the world. Yeah. And I got to believe, Mike, that, uh, you know, th th these guys must be basing it on, on, on something, right? So where do you think that comes from? Well, you know, to me, there, I think there's always been ageism as well as <laughs> sexism in Silicon Valley. And as much as Silicon Valley wants to come off as very libertarian and very progressive, mm -hmm. I think we all know the truth, right? The truth is they hire from a handful of schools. They invest in people that are part of those networks. That's true. And, you know, it just... It, I, there's, you know, there's so many things that have been broken, you know, move fast and break things has not worked out really well for a lot of companies. But what I think is fascinating is, you know, after decades of this mythology mm -hmm. that younger is better for the first time ever, a very definitive study that has been done by MIT, mm -hmm. by Northwestern Kellogg, by the U.S. Bureau of Statistics, by the Censor Bureau, have irrefutably come up with a definitive answer. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that answer is the most successful entrepreneurs are middle-aged. And when I say wow. entrepreneurs, I'm very specific, not people that are opening up pizzerias and dry cleaners. <laughs> and there's no, not trying to denigrate them, but we're, we're talking about here, especially in light of our core thesis, disruptive innovation. Yep. 
the entrepreneurs that create the types of companies that disrupt societal behavior, yeah. hands down, are led by founders with a mean age of about 45 to 46. Yeah, and I got to say, it's been interesting. So I'm, I'm an avid reader and big follower of uh, the 30 under 30, the Forbes list, right? And then there's a 40 under 40. Yeah. And it is interesting because if you look at those, uh, the trajectory and the, uh, the pedigree, as we, as we mentioned earlier, it really does come from what seems to be a very specific set of schools. Um, and, you know, uh, they're not always predictors of, of whether or not those people are going to be successful, but it, it is a way to start to begin to see who might be on the trajectory and the trend. And what I find fascinating is it's not always in those early days that they hit that, you know, big success. Sometimes it comes later. Uh, and the companies that you talk, that we talk about and we, we tend to focus on here that are big and disruptive. I mean, I think about Starbucks, right? 42 right. years old when that, that, that store was started. And that's been a life-changing movement in terms of the, the industry and what we think of as, as coffee. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so, so that Jerry Baldwin really changed that. And he was 42 when he started. You know? Very interesting. But, you know, what I want to say is a couple of things. So as a, as a guy that's been a professor of entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. we are going to follow this episode with a complimentary episode, which is all about the state of entrepreneurial education in Western MBA programs and universities and colleges. And in no way am I trying to dissuade or discourage students and young aspirational entrepreneurs from living their dreams. Absolutely. But at the same time, as an educator, and especially as an entrepreneur, we need to deal in reality. We need to have our eyes wide open, especially when you're about to jump into an endeavor as all-consuming and as demanding um, as entrepreneurship. So this episode really is going to dig in and share some very interesting numbers that I think will surprise some people. I love it. The research did not get a lot of media attention. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, right? There's, and we're going to talk more about academic research in the world of entrepreneurship in our follow-on episode. But in general, because university entrepreneurship is often led by PhDs that have never run startups. That's right. A lot of the research tends to veer toward the so what, okay? Some, you know, a lot of obvious things come out of this research. But in this instance, this is the first time anybody has studied so comprehensively the link between age and entrepreneurial success. And I find it fascinating. So, you know, of course there's Mark Zuckerberg. And without Sheryl Sandberg and a coterie of other world-class advisors, That's right. um, there's no way that he could have ever with his socially awkward persona, <laughs> you know, and not to criticize him, I mean, yeah. but, he, but he obviously is not the most socially comfortable guy on the planet. But even someone like Evan Spiegel, who's running Snapchat, right? Snapchat is a one-hit wonder. Yep. And Snapchat and Evan specifically are known to be a guy that takes counsel from no one, much to his own peril at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And we can go on and on. But here's what I think is interesting. Dave Duffield, Mm -hmm. the very charismatic founder of Workday Solutions, 64 years old when he founded the company. Now, Steve Jobs, yes, he did found Apple as a young man. But remember, there's the mythology about the old apple and there's the reality. Yeah. The mythology about the old apple is not true because Apple had less than 1% market share of the PC market. They, oh, they the, were, the PC was dominating. Yeah, back they then. were an absolute asterisk in that world. And it was only 
when Jobs came back to Apple after being unceremoniously fired by yep. John Scully yep. and then spending 12 years in exile mm-hmm. at Next, failing again at 52 years old, a lifetime from his early days of Apple, did he have that magic touch? And then this is when the iPod and the iPhone literally changed the world. But it's also the experience of his failures, right? And and the fact that he'd gone off next was this thing where he believed he could almost push the design into the space, didn't really understand the customer, hadn't really evolved his own thinking. So the process of learning, I think, and I think we'll get to some of this in this conversation, is really a, a key factor in the success of these older entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, older, 42 isn't old. We're just saying that, you know, from, from the perspective of this discussion, right? Absolutely. Uh, that, that experience matters and it does actually factor into how potentially successful you can be. Absolutely. And you use the phrase, okay, boomer. And, <laughs> and I know it's getting more loaded now and there's, there's this uh, push on that, you know, it's becoming ageist. Yep. Um, and, and I know that at the Yale Harvard game, they were shouting, okay, boomer oh, no. from the, from the gridiron during this protest on, uh, on, Saturday on Saturday when they yeah. took over the game. But, but listen, you're absolutely right. There is a lot to be said. And this survey absolutely makes clear that self-awareness and yeah retrospective, you know, ability to analyze your successes and failures and act on them, right? And just life wisdom. Yep. Have a huge role. John Chambers, who founded Cisco, right? 46 years old when he started the company. Tony Fidel, who founded Nest after plying his trade at Apple for a long time, was Mm -hmm. 41. And Herb Boyer, who founded arguably the most successful biotech company on the planet, Genentech, Genentech, was 40. So at the very low end of the scale, we have Mark Benioff, mm-hmm. who was 35 when he founded Salesforce.com. But he had, he had 12 years of working under Larry Ellison. So those are dog years, okay? <laughs> so that was, he was really 100 when he founded it. So listen, I know that we can shape narratives to anything, but, but here's where I think it gets interesting, right? If you look at the bottom line, Young founders, and when I say young founders, between 20 and 35, right? So at about 35, statistically, you start to see a gradual improvement in outcomes. But young founders in that 20 to 35 range fail at an alarmingly high rate. And there's an almost certain level of failure for those kinds of founders. Now, again, I want to remind listeners, there's, you know, we're going to talk later in the three things about some of the most successful products in the history of Shark Tank. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But these are, you know, the most significant one did $150 million in revenue. And all of these are likely, they're basically novelties. We're not talking about novelties. We're talking about innovation that changes society. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it just makes me think uh, of, of so many different examples of, and I think one of the things that's interesting about the research, right, we, we typically think of all the sexy industries that are consumer facing. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that have done disruptive work uh, in these fields that typically don't see the light, right? Uh, that's right. Because they're not front and center. It's in those, in those uh, harder industries to break in where really you can't really do it at too young an age, typically anyway. Absolutely. Uh, so I think, it, I think it is interesting to, to, to get into some of these details so, so folks can understand uh, some of the background. You're right. And so, you know, we did an episode with Lee Edwards on hard yeah. tech or deep yeah. tech. First of all, in the biotech industry, it's very, very unlikely to find a founder that is less than 45. Yep. Now, as we move to digital therapeutics, we had the wonderful Liam Kaufman yep. in here. Yep. That's a different world. That's, a different world. That's AI and machine learning. Yep. But, you know, to your point, 
Um, a lot of companies that are disruptive, the world doesn't know about them. They're not household names. They're B2B companies. Mm -hmm. We think of some of the more successful recent examples of companies that have gone public, right? Cybersecurity companies like CrowdStrike, you know, next-gen telecommunications companies like ZoomInfo, yep. right? These are not companies that, you know, your mom would know of, and they're not companies that the average consumer would know of, but these are companies that have changed the way that we do business in the world. So let me just net out some of the key findings of the research, okay? And we're talking about creating these one in 1,000 black swan companies. Mm -hmm. Founders in their early 20s have the lowest likelihood of success in creating one of these one in 1,000 top growth companies. There were 2.7 million founders in the U.S. in the period between 2007 and 2014 that actually got to hire just one employee, just wow. one. And wow. the, med the mean age for those people who founded these companies with just one employee mm -hmm. is 42. Wow. Okay. The mean founder age for those one in 1,000 companies with the highest growth is 45. And here's what's interesting. The most successful entrepreneurs in high-tech sector, Silicon Valley, Boston, New York, mm -hmm. are consistently similar. So it's not as if if you were to go into Silicon Valley, right, where Mark Zuckerberg or Paul Graham would say, you know, from our vantage point, you know, 32 is when you start to get really old, right? <laughs> hey, hey, boomer, I'm 32 now. That's right. Right? And it turns out even in Silicon Valley, it's, it's, it's just not realistic that yeah. the, the mean age of successful companies in the Valley. Yep. And I just mentioned Duffield at 64 and, you know, um, Chambers at 46, it's about 45 years old, right? The batting average for creating five successful firms is rising dramatically in age. So conditioned on starting a firm, a 50-year-old founder is twice as likely to achieve upper outlier growth than a 30-year-old, hmm. twice as likely. And so younger founders appear to be strongly disadvantaged in their tendency to produce the highest growth companies. Below age 25, founders do extremely badly or conversely, rarely do they do well. But there's a sharp increase in performance beginning at age 25 and between, and then between at 25 and 35, it's flat. Hmm. And then from 35 on, you start to see a significant increase in probabilities up until you hit about age 60. Interesting. And at about age 60, things start to plateau or decelerate a bit. So I'd be interested to see, you know, and, and obviously we, we have the research, but be fascinating as a follow-on. And I know that there are some articles that I read that were talking about uh, what the next phases of that research uh, really should be, focusing on the education or, you know, income a relative social status and those types of things. I'd be fascinated to understand how they're thinking about remedying that, right? In other words, if we're tracking this trend, what can we do or what, what's out there to help these, you know, founders, these entrepreneurs? It's, it's some of what you do in, in your classes and what you teach, right? Helping the entrepreneur to understand what that journey looks like and probably the mentorship that's necessary for you to get to that growth, right? Absolutely. And often, you know, to, direct them toward working for world-class entrepreneurs that will mentor them mm -hmm. and prepare them so when they're ready to do it, they come out of the blocks quickly. And, but let's, and I would say, let's start to dig into some of this. I think it's probably time for a break. Yes. 
Okay, so why don't we take a, a short break and then we'll come back and we'll start to dig into the study. Fantastic. We'll be right back. This spot is reserved for you, our sponsors. If you'd like to be a part of the show and get your name to be associated with us and become a sponsor of a segment for the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, then reach out to Mike and Nikiso at Iwantin at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com or this is cool at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com. Thank you. All right. So let me make it clear in terms of how the authors define a successful outcome. Okay. To delineate a successful outcome within the population, that massive population of new ventures, what they're basically looking at is those companies that are in the top 1% and the top 0.1% of growth. And then they complement these metrics with employment-based growth measures to show, you know, the number of employees that were hired by the, so, you know, these are very practical Mm -hmm. types of statistics. There's nothing here that is subjective. Okay. And so the most successful startups have average age of a founder of 45. Okay. And that is now for the top 0.1%. If we're talking about the the top 1%, it comes down slightly to 43.7. And if we're talking about the top five, it only comes down to about 42 years old. So from companies achieving anywhere from being in the top 5%, right, the 95th percent to the 99.9th percentile, it's still only a span of about three. So this is just absolutely irrefutable when we talk about founder age is the successful founders are middle age. The second thing that I think is really interesting is that when you study founders, right, the, uh, there's a fairly flat pat plateau between 37 and 43. And quite honestly, I think that would be a fascinating follow-on study. The authors don't so. really offer any insight into why that is. Hmm. I mean, you know, I could hypothesize that it's a common age where people are starting families and that, you know, it kind of seems to be at a time when um, people are starting to realize that we're going to start a family, now's the time to do it. And to the extent that husband and wife are in a certain same age bracket. Yep. You know, there's no question trying to run a startup and trying to be a dad or, or <laughs> a mom is, uh, is more than most people can imagine and more than most people can handle. So it's possible that has something to do with it, but I'm only speculating right now. Um, now, the likelihood of success to me is interesting. And here, success is either an IPO, okay, very specific, right? Very unambiguous. Mm-hmm. Or creating employment in the top 0.1% as measured five years from founding, which is a limitation huh. of the data. Okay. So very, very explosive types of growth. Okay. Well, so they are looking at a five-year timeline to, to measure this yeah. out, right? So you do get a certain amount of runway before they figure out, have you been successful or not? Okay. Absolutely. And, All right. And that's what, fair. And what we've seen in prior studies, right? So Bain Capital did a study. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the very interesting outputs, and Bain Capital, of course, has the hedge fund, and, yep. they, and Bain has the strategy firm. So they did this very interesting study that said that more often than not, the most successful companies come out of the gate pretty quickly, right? They've identified a problem, and they've nailed it. Right, they go after it. And so five years seems to be a reasonable amount of time in which to determine whether a company is going to be one of these outliers. Yeah, we've talked about that in the past, where we've talked about Uber, we've talked yep. about uh, uh, well, last week, I think we were talking about 
uh, Airbnb. Uh, so yeah, the, these these companies uh, accelerated out of the gates really in terms of their products. Absolutely. So the mean founder age for those in the you know the one to one thousand highest growth, as we said, is 45 years old. Now, what I find interesting, and, and you know, one of the results of the study is that there were some very, very pointed articles, including mm-hmm. by several economists, saying that we are doing a disservice to young entrepreneurs by encouraging them to start companies. Interesting. And I think that's just such an extreme interpretation and for several reasons. One is, let's be clear, right? Large corporations aren't hiring at nearly the rate that they were in the past. So those opportunities are far less than they've ever been. Yeah. The second is we have a new generation of founders that just can't imagine working for the man. Yep. And they, they want to live authentically. They want to live their passion. And so I, I do get concerned when I see people knee-jerk reaction. Well, this is proof that you know, we should steer founders away from starting companies if they're not 45 years old, right? I don't think that is the message or the lesson that the authors of the study sent. And it's certainly not the message that I wanted. But yeah, and I, and I certainly agree with that. I think that, uh, again, just referencing the 30 under 30, you look at that and you look at some of the categories, they've actually broken it out now and made it much more uh, holistic in terms of the places or the industries. And there is some fabulous disruption that's coming out of some of those, at least in, you know, where you think you start to project out in the future and you think, yeah, this is a, this, there's clearly a market or, or a need that's been identified. And uh, yeah, I'm glad somebody young is going after it and they got the energy to do it. I think what we'll, what we're talking about is, and what we'll talk about in the follow-up episode is, you know, all these things are great, but they'd be better if there's some support around it or some mentorship, some structure. Some of the things that really helped, we talked about this earlier, Zuckerberg only became successful, I think, in principle, because he had someone like Sheryl Sandberg really playing mom. <laughs> Absolutely. Outside of that, um, you know, and, and so, and that coachability and that the, the, the whether it was the board or, or whatever, the fact that he had somebody like that um, certainly helped that company to go in the right direction, at least initially, right? Absolutely. In many ways, not not that he isn't obviously a genius as a coder and as an architect and, and all those things, but um, there's no question he took tremendous counsel from the people around him. And you have to give him credit for that. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, for all the things you may say about Zuckerberg today that are not necessarily positive, um, give him credit, unlike Evan Spiegel, for taking counsel from senior people. So- you know, the study itself, I think, is self-evident. For those of you who find this interesting, it's about 45 pages in length. Um, but, you know, it's pretty easily netted out. And I think we've covered the key points. So as you stay tuned for our next episode, we're going to do a deep dive on the state of entrepreneurial education in top MBA programs and in top universities, both in the U.S. and in the world. And I'd like to connect these two episodes because I do think as, as Nikiso just uh, did, you know, they are very much connected. And mm-hmm. I think that there's no reason why there shouldn't be much more of a continuous bridge or cycle between these two populations. I think they can serve one another and reverse mentoring, of course, has become a very, very powerful trend as well. Yeah. And, and just in terms of connecting it back to some of our earlier episodes, if we aren't doing this here right now in this moment in terms of supporting the young entrepreneur and allowing them and providing the facility for them to 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 try to fail and and to fail and to succeed 
um, we're just going to be left even further behind, right? So this by no means, this episode, for anybody listening uh, to our listeners, this isn't about discouraging this, uh, you know, the young entrepreneur. It's really much the, the opposite. I think there's a lot that we can learn uh, in terms of helping to guide the young entrepreneur uh, to, to that success. Um, but also, you know, just recognizing that the older entrepreneur is out, out there and relevant. Yeah, and, <laughs> and maybe this helps older entrepreneurs who have always harbored the fantasy or the dream yep. Yep. of starting a company and, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons were, you know, led to believe or they they created their own self-perception that they were just too old to do this. Yeah. I will say that, you know, having done this myself for over 27 years, um, you know, the number of experienced entrepreneurs that have lived in industries that have seen challenges and obstacles and pain points are in the single best position to understand how those impact the success of an industry. Yeah. And in the best position to think about how to create solutions that, you know, make things better. So I hope this also is a, you know, on some level, a wake up call, if not just, you know, some inspiration for the older entrepreneurs that have been on the fence about, you know, do I continue to sort of, you know, grind it out in my day job and in a big company, or do I maybe go figure out how to help the industry I've worked in my whole career be more effective or more, uh, more profitable. That's right. And I think earlier you were talking about Shark Tank, right? So some examples from that, that we were going to discuss and, and get into. Yeah. Um, that, that might be a, 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 you know, a good segue into that discussion, because I do think the, that represents people who are really, you know, stepping out there and <laughs> publicly putting themselves out there in front of these judges who are pretty brutal, but they're fair, I think, in how they assess these companies. And obviously some they've made good bets on and have done well and others n- not, but that's, that's the name of the game in many ways. Absolutely. So why don't we take a quick break yep. and we'll come back and we'll dig into, into Shark Tank and, and, and some of your own insights on, uh, you know, older entrepreneurs who have not necessarily come out of the world of disruption, but have done some incredible things. I like that. Excellent. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this session and any of the previous episodes, find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating at the end, please. Your support is what keeps us in your ears every week. Thank you. We're back. Uh, So let's keep going, Mike. Yeah, so let's talk about Shark Tank. Now, Shark Tank is a show that I, I have very mixed emotions about, right? And, <laughs> and I will say this. I think for most people, um, you know, don't understand that it is truly entertainment. It is virtual mm-hmm. reality. It is a scripted TV show, right? Yep. And I've got a lot of young entrepreneurs I've mentored that have been on the show. Um, and they will tell me that what they saw on the screen was a surprise to them. Because, you know, they might have recorded for an hour and they saw 15 or 20 minutes. So I want to, you know, I know that a lot of people love Shark Tank and I know a lot of young entrepreneurs love Shark Tank. So I just want to tell you to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. <laughs> it's TV, um, people. It's TV. Of course, you know, Kevin Leary, Mr. Wonderful, when you, uh, he, he is in and out of Boston all the time. And yeah. People will tell you he's actually pretty much a nice guy. It's just a certain persona that he takes on when he's on the show. Yeah. But what I think is interesting is this show has been on TV since 19, uh, 19, 2013, 2013. Yep. And if you look at sort of the, the revenue of the top 20 companies, it's, it, it's nothing extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So the single most successful product in the history of Shark Tank is Bombas. And Bombas makes socks. socks. Yeah. They make socks. Now, they're cool socks, right? And I know you go to trade shows today, and they this is out. one of the pieces of swag that a lot of companies <laughs> are heading out, right? You know, the, the shark that invested was Draymond John mm-hmm. and it's doing $225 million in revenue. So again, it's not 
disruptive. It's yeah. not a ma- But I mean, obviously it's providing a great living for a, a few entrepreneurs. Um, second product is called Scrub Daddy. And it's essentially a kitchen sponge. Scrub Daddy. Yeah. And this was Lori Griner was the shark. This was pitched all the way back in uh, the very early days, 2012. Huh. Um, and it's doing about 200 million in annual sales. Uh, Lori Griner in for yet another uh, more um, sort of basic product, Squatty Potty. Okay. Which is a foot rest when you're using the toilet. Uh, doing about, I never knew I needed one of those, but, but just learning now. Yeah, exactly. $165 million in revenue. And then Lori Griner again. So Lori seems to have the Midas touch because she's got, uh, she was the lead investor on the best sellers at, at slots two, three, and four. This is called the Simply Fit Board. Mm. It's a curved exercise board. I can't say that I know. Had it. one of those actually. Okay. Yeah. No, those were fun. Got, okay. got it for the kids. Yeah. And also about $160 million in revenue. And then Barbara Kokorin uh, invested in the original company, which was a sweatshirt blanket. Hmm. And the sweatshirt blanket has sales about 150 million. What's interesting is four of the five top products were the investments were led by women on the show. What does that tell us? Okay. And then as we start to get into the next couple, um, you know, after about product number seven, we, we dip below a hundred million pretty quickly. Hmm. So again, these are, you know, these are very much novelty products. Yeah. Um, none of these companies, I think, are built to last, if you will. None of them are going to change the way that the world works. Um, but it's a, but certainly a lot of the entrepreneurs that pitch on these shows are older entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so it's just an example of another part of the world of older entrepreneurship that I think a lot of people would find very accessible because I know a lot of people do watch. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, we were talking uh, during the break uh, obviously these, uh, just in terms of companies that I think, uh, fit the same mold, not, not in the disruptive sphere that we typically talk about, but you know, Lou Lemon, uh, you know, uh, founded Chip Wilson when he was 42, uh, went to a yoga class inspired to create stylish attire for women. And I mean, I don't know that I go anywhere in New York city, uh, or in Boston when you walk in the streets and you don't see, uh, at least 10 or 15 women walking down the street and they that's all they wear is Lululemon. It's a, at this point, it's probably part of every woman's closet, I'd imagine. Yeah, it is. And it's an incredible success story. I mean, I taught the case for many, many years. Oh, fantastic. And I mean, definitely invented the athleisure category. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. there's no doubt that, you know, it has changed what is socially acceptable yes, in terms of as, attire. So correct. in some ways it was disruptive in, in the way that people are now comfortable going even to work yeah. and yoga yeah. apparel. Uh, and then, uh, Coca-Cola, which I thought that was the, when I was just finding that one was great. 42 years old to start Coca-Cola, this iconic brand that does 1.9 billion in sales. It's a global brand. I mean, they sponsor everything from sporting events, the Olympics, world cup, you name it, right? This, these are big iconic brands and the recipe uh, maker, uh, he was 55, Dr. John Pemberton. Uh, so you, you think about this idea that this big company was started so late in someone's professional career um, with a mad scientist who's cooking up a recipe at 55. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I think as, you know, as we think about, you know, age and entrepreneurship, what what I hope that we've been able to convey right throughout the series so far, right. Mm -hmm. If we think about some of the people that we've had in the studio yep, from Sean McDowell last week. Yep. Right. And, you know, Sean has been at Nike 22 years. Right. Um, We thought, think about a guy like, um, uh, Lee Edwards, mm-hmm. right? 
definitely sort of, you know, in that 35 age plus as yep. an investor, looking at a lot of older entrepreneurs. I think that, you know, if you look back and just reflect on our own experiences, although there's limited data points, yep. right? It yep. just, it supports a lot of what these findings say. So again, if this is something that's of interest to you, I encourage you to go out and read the study. Yep. I think we'll take a quick break and come back for three things. Fantastic. We'll be right back. We're back. Uh, so before we jump into three things, Mike, I realized that uh, the number for Coke was actually more like $9.5 billion in, in revenue rather than $1.9. Wanted to clarify that right up front. Okay, so three things. What you got for me? Yeah, so let's, since the theme of this episode was all about older entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. let me um, uh, pay tribute to Don Valentine. Don Valentine was the founder of Sequoia Capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, He lived a very rich life. He died at 87, just passed away very recently. Um, He was one of the most influential venture capitalists of his generation. Absolutely. Um, What a lot of people may not understand is that, you know, Sequoia Capital, arguably, if not the most successful, one of the most successful Mm -hmm. venture capital firms in U.S. history. Would agree with that. And hugely important now in China, right? Sequoia in China has really become one of the key players there. So what I love about this guy is, you know, he lived and worked in the Valley himself as an entrepreneur, working at both Fairchild and its spin out National Semiconductor. Mm-hmm. So the name Silicon Valley came to be partly because of the semiconductor industry in That's Silicon. Right. So, you know, he spent a lot of time building product, but when he became a VC, mm-hmm. he was the first money into Atari in 1975. He wrote Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak a check for $150,000. He was an early investor in Cisco. Mm-hmm. He had the Midas touch. Nice. And, and he was very much a, uh, he was eccentric. So he liked green ink. <laughs> he never drank coffee. So I suspect he probably did not invest in Starbucks when they came calling. Um, he apparently understood the virtues of silence. Interesting. And he was someone who constantly challenged startups by saying, who cares? So he got, he got the simplicity of it, right? Yes, there's a lot of technology. Yes, the business. By the end of the day, someone has to care. That's awesome. So I give uh, Valentin a lot of credit because there's, this is one of the few examples of a successful passing of the torch from an older generation. So Michael Moritz then you know, became the managing partner of Sequoia. Mm-hmm. And they're now looking at the next generation. Um, and it's just a firm that has really had an on, you know, just a disproportionate influence on the Valley. So rest in peace, Don Valentine. Love it. Now, looking at some of the companies that he's invested in, right, some stock market data that I think is just amazing. The combined market cap of just two companies, <laughs> Apple and Microsoft, is 2.3 trillion USD. That's incredible, Mike. It's incredible when you look at the fact that many other industries, entire industries, pale in comparison. So the financial services industry mm-hmm. in and of it, which, which is massive, only has a market cap of about $3.4 trillion in, in its entirety. And then <laughs> consumer discretionary, $2.5 trillion, industrials, $2.4 trillion, communication staples, $1.9 trillion, energy, everything that gets us to work every day, $1.1 trillion, utilities, $0.9 billion, real estate, $0.8. So these two companies, Obviously, companies we speak of often, 
companies that are as disruptive as any two companies that have ever been founded um, have created a level of wealth and valuation that is just beyond understanding. And I, and I don't think that I don't think they're stopping either. If you think about the fact that we talk about financial services, Apple now is partnering even more deeply with that industry and other industries across the board. So in many ways, it seems like these are the companies that will forever uh, be a part of what we do and in, in our lives. It certainly seems that way. And, and, you know, Apple seems to be resurging. I mean, obviously, they've just jumped into the streaming wars in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their services business is starting to show some significant growth. Yep. Um, which, quite frankly, is amazing because those uh, $349, you know, version two earpods are, yep. uh, they're, they're beyond what you would t- think a typical consumer would, would pay for, but they're selling the hell out of those things. Well, they're sold out in most places. Yeah, That's yeah, one of the hottest to holiday gifts right now. Yeah. So these are two fascinating companies. And what I find amazing about Amazon, right, there was an article just this week about Amazon has become the new management training ground. In many ways, that has replaced General Electric, which for for decades- That's right. GE was the place. Was the place. And now yeah. people want someone who is trained at Amazon. And if you look at Bezos and you look at his team, uh-huh. many of whom have been with him for 20 plus years, they still have the fire. Yeah. They still have the discipline. They still have the rigor. It's an extraordinary machine. And you're right. There's no signs of it slowing down. And they've been- very able to stay out of a lot of the controversy around data privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're starting to get the message, I think, on sustainability and recycling. You know, they listen. Yeah. So, you know, it just I'm just in awe of what these two companies have done. And we've talked previously. I mean, Amazon, for example, with their foray into pharmaceuticals and having the Amazon pharmacy, right? So I feel like there's no industry that Amazon and Bezos are not looking at and saying, we want a piece of that. Uh, you know, so which on some level is a bit scary. It's like, okay, they're everywhere. Yeah. Your margin <laughs> is my margin. It's yeah. basically, it's the Tony Soprano uh, of industry, right? I <laughs> want to dip my beak in your industry and your margin too. That's right. Yeah. There's an yeah. article I was reading recently. They said that um, uh, Walmart, uh, and I can't remember where in, in, uh, in, the, in North America the plant is. I think it's in Ohio or somewhere. And there was nobody else there. And uh, Amazon comes in and builds a factory right next to next door and builds one of their engineering shops right next door. And really it's just there principally to poach anybody who might be doing engineering or might be. So let's go where my competitor is. Let's build a factory right across the street. And because I can pay more, I'm going to hire those people over. Yeah. I mean, it's. No, it's, it's, it's gotten it's, pretty ugly. It's a fight them. out there. It's gotten personal. It's kind of like the Coke and Pepsi thing. To, <laughs> and I remember there was that point where, you know, Walmart really started it when Walmart came out and said that if you're putting, you know, no vendor doing business with us can mm-hmm. put their stuff in the Amazon cloud. Yeah. So, you know, am, uh, careful what you sow <laughs> with Bezos because that guy will just keep coming at you. And there was a, you know, the Wall Street Journal put out their annual insert yesterday, their 250 top managed companies. Mm-hmm. And there was a big red flag in Walmart's, uh, you know, analysis, customer sat is mm-hmm. way, way down. Yeah, the seat sets go low. Yep. Yeah. So, so if you think about what does Amazon do, great customer service, customer sat. Yeah. So it's, it's a fascinating thing. And although Walmart is still a massive company and they've got a lot of fight, they're starting to back off in e-commerce, right? You're starting to see them backing off on food delivery Mm -hmm. and they've started to de-emphasize several of the brands that were very ill-advised acquisitions of them that were much more what I'll call millennial brands, you know, hipster brands that they had no business buying. Yep. All right. And then let's talk about another very controversial Chinese company as our final piece today. 
TikTok. <laughs> now, I don't know how many of our listeners paid attention to a small, musically-focused social media app called Music.ly mm-hmm. back in 2016, 2017. It was getting a lot of notoriety amongst the tweener set. And yep. I, you know, I love innovation, so I checked it out. I, just, I couldn't get it, so that meant it must have been pretty cool because <laughs> I didn't get it. Well, it turns out the company known as ByteDance got it. Yeah, yeah. And at a different time and in a different place, they acquired Musical.ly. And they, interesting. So that's where the IP came from. That's where the oh, IP came from. So, it, so they it. turned this into TikTok. Now in China, it's called Douyin, D-O-U-Y-I-N. But what's happening here is it is the first time a Chinese app has gone mainstream mm-hmm. outside of China. And over 100 million Americans have downloaded the app. And it has raised all kinds of red flags and alarm bells. And mm-hmm. so... All of a sudden, you have the uh, Committee on Foreign Investments in the U.S. taking a look and thinking about, do we unwind this? Mm-hmm. At the time, you know, very, you know, ignored acquisition. You've got a lot of government agencies very much worried about what kind of personal data is being sent back to China. Right. So, you know, it's a fascinating pivot point inflection point, you know, because we've always wondered, okay, China has seemed to be in their own little world. We've been in our own little world. Never the two worlds shall meet when it comes to apps. Yeah. But now we're starting to put TikTok into use on hundred million phones. Yeah. And a lot of people are very nervous about it. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. And I got to say it, 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 the TikTok craze reminds me of what happened with WhatsApp and the reason why Facebook ended up doing the acquisition, because there was no way even with, with their platform and with the established user base that they had, WhatsApp was still way too relevant to ignore. Uh, and I feel like TikTok, and to your point about the privacy, I mean, that's been the biggest issue with uh, TikTok. And I think we've talked about it on previous episodes too, that, that they just collect every single piece of data they can, and they are going to monetize the heck out of that. And also it speaks to what privacy do you have? And, you know, what... I mean, there's just so many other things that come up when you start to think about an app that you're using consistently that's always on and that you are using uh, in your home and what could be mined from some of those conversations. It's, it's a powerful, you know, it's a powerful thought and a question there, right, about what, what's the exposure. Yeah. And, and listen, there's, there's so much controversy right now. I mean, obviously what's going on in Hong Kong and, yep. and that, that has just escalated to the point where they had an all out war at the university with Molotov cocktails being thrown continuously and just elections over the last couple of days with Mm -hmm. pro-democracy people, you know, just surging ahead. Yeah. So I just, I think it's just a matter of time before it really starts to get to a level that is just, you can't pull back. And I think we're getting close. So I think, you know, TikTok's timing is unfortunately not good for them. Um, It would, you know, but I, but I do very much understand the concerns of the U S government. And let's be honest, there is zero privacy. And if a Chinese company tells an app, yeah, Thomas Silent China, you give us information, they, they have no choice. They have they, no choice. They give them the information. Fascinating conversation, Mike. Uh, as, as always, we could keep going on this stuff. Uh, plenty of examples. I think a really great discussion. Looking forward to the follow-up. So stay tuned, listeners. Um, uh, we'll be back. That's our segment for today. Join us next week as we bring you more on disruptive innovation. To find notes from the show, links to interesting articles, and see what's coming next week, follow us on social media. On Twitter, you can find us using the handle Disruptive Innovation Podcast, and visit our blog at disruptiveinnovation.live. Until next week, from Nikiso and Mike, bye for now.